Welcome to the Circular Economy podcast by the Ellen MacArthur Foundation. We know that plastic pollution is a big problem. You've probably seen images of bottle-strewn beaches and animals trapped in plastic packaging. Maybe you've also noticed clusters of litter in your local area or been annoyed at how much single-use packaging comes with your weekly shop. While collecting and recycling that waste helps in the short term, how do we stop it from becoming a problem in the first place? In today's Circular Economy Show podcast, we're talking about upstream innovation, what it means and how it provides solutions to the plastic crisis. I'm Pippa Shorty, part of the team here at the Ellen MacArthur Foundation, and I'll be your host for this episode. I'm joined by my colleague, Laura franco Anal who will guide us through what we mean by upstream innovation and how plastic works within a circular economy framework. Thanks for joining us, Lara. Hello, Pippa. I can't wait to discuss solutions to plastic pollution today. We're going to also be hearing from some really inspiring guests about their innovations. Thanks, Lara. Before we dig in, just a reminder that this podcast is based on a recent conversation we had as part of our Circular Economy Show programme. If you'd like to watch the whole show, you can find the link in the episode description. Laura, before we hear from our guests, can you tell us what this phrase upstream innovation means and how it links to the circular economy? Of course. I think, I think first of all, it's very important to understand that plastics are a vers- versatile materials, but the way in which we use them, it's incredibly wasteful. And a circular economy, it's a system solutions framework that is based in three principles. So eliminate waste and pollution, keeps products and materials in use, and regenerate natural systems. And the way that we envision a circular economy uh, for plastics is based on these three principles, and we describe them in these three elements. So we must eliminate the plastic packaging that we don't need. We must um, innovate so that the plastic that we need is reusable, compostable, or recyclable. And we must circulate so that all the plastics items that we create are in the economy and out of the environment. And upstream innovation in, in, in this particular context, it's about tracing a problem back to its root causes and addressing it there. So in Instead of dealing with a pile of waste, why don't we prevent it from being created in the first place? We usually use the tap analogy. So if if you arrived home and you found out that the tap was open and your house was getting flooded with water, what would you do? And the first thing you would do is to go and obviously turn off the tab um, instead of dealing with all the water that is there. So it's instead of dealing with the consequences of a problem, how do you go and address what the cause, the root cause of the issue that you have? Well, it's exciting to hear these solutions. Um, First up, we're going to hear a little bit about why fruit and vegetables are often wrapped in plastic. Well, the main causes of spoilage for fresh fruits and vegetables are desiccation, so water loss, and then oxidation, spoilage on the inside. And what the plastic packaging serves to do is really create a barrier around the fruit that prevents um, water from leaving the fruit and oxygen from getting in. So for a long time, you know, because fruit can be grown and starts to spoil, starts that kind of ripening and spoiling process as soon as it's picked, in order to get it to the shelf and get it to consumers' homes without going bad, we've used tricks like plastic packaging and refrigeration um, in order to get it there without wasting food. That was Jessica Vieira, Senior Director of Sustainability at Appeal, a company that's developed an alternative to that plastic packaging, as Jessica explained. 
So a peel is an alternative. A peel is a plant-derived coating that's applied to fresh fruits and vegetables after they're harvested. And it does essentially the same thing. It creates this incredibly thin, kind of invisible barrier around the fruit or vegetable that's made of ingredients that are already in the fruits and vegetables that we eat and creates this little extra peel, hence the name appeal, that slows down the water loss and oxidation of the fruit. So the fruits and vegetables end up lasting twice as long as they would without a peel, even you know without refrigeration. A product that helps fruit and vegetables last twice as long has to be a good thing, Nara. Yes, and it's a double win. It eliminates unnecessary packaging, which is often plastic, plus it prevents a lot of food from going to waste. And at the moment, one third of our edible food goes to waste. So this has a huge potential. And the solution, like many solutions in the circular economy, came from looking closely at nature, as Jessica explained. You know, in the very early days when the company was founded, we're studying this food waste challenge, you know, with a real mission around how do we improve food security. And instead of looking, you know, at some of these you know, tricks, as I call them, for how we, you know, battle nature or work against nature, they actually just looked at how nature is already solving these problems and studied what what are the core components of the peel of a strawberry or a lemon? And why is it that a lemon lasts so much longer than a strawberry? Because what they found was all of the components um, and different kind of ingredients within the peels were the same, but they were just structured differently. So can we use food like you know fresh fruits and vegetables and the materials that are already in them to create that structure on the outside of a fresh fruit or vegetable so that the peel is kind of reinforced to some extent with a little bit of an extra layer to make the produce last longer. Today, a peel can be found coating produce across the US, Canada and Europe in shops including Edeka in Germany and Kroger stores in the US. But it all started under the microscope, as Jessica explained. We've actually been on this road for almost 10 years now from the idea formation all the way through where we're at today with over 500 employees, um, operations in six countries. But the first few years of the organization were really R&D focused. How do we understand you know, what the peel is made of of regular fruits and vegetables at the molecular level? The company was founded by material scientists who are really just focused on you know, taking a microscope to the natural world and understanding how nature has been solving these problems. And then as a disruptive technology, the next few years were really about market development. It's a new product that affects quite a few actors, really almost the whole supply chain. So you know, who are, who is the customer? What is the best place to integrate the product? Um, how much value can it create and in different ways, um, especially in an industry that's not, you know, particularly agile and, and ever-changing where there's a lot of risk of trying a new product when it could affect your entire harvest for that year. Um, so there was a lot of relationship building, um, proving out the value of the product. Building that trust and developing relationships with people throughout the supply chain has been vital for getting this idea off the ground. But how does it actually work? So a peel can be applied any time after the produce is picked, 
what's happening today is we're partnering with large produce packers um, and suppliers where the produce is aggregated and you know boxed and shipped to retailers and other food distribution channels. And so we design and help install these appeal application systems where our product is mixed in solution with water. So it's a water-based solution sprayed onto the produce and lightly dried before the produce is then sent out um, to retailers. And, you know, recently um, imperfect produce or imperfect foods here in the U.S. is, is carrying appeal as well. Um, and so yep, it's applied as early in the supply chain as we can when we find those points of aggregation to apply so that the benefits extend throughout the rest of the supply chain. In some instances, you know, with produce that's stored for a long period of time, we can reduce waste even in that storage stage or allow them to think about adjusting maybe the temperature the produce needs to be stored at or lost during, during distribution. Um, we've seen a lot of evidence that it reduces food waste in retail stores on the shelf. Um, we've seen 50% on average uh, food waste reduction at retail with our products. And then the benefits extend even to the consumer, um, where when you, you know, typically would take the packaging out off or take it out of refrigeration during distribution is when you start to see a lot more of that spoilage. Our product stays with the produce the entire time so that the effect is realized with those downstream stakeholders as well. Our audience might also be wondering, Pipa, how safe is it? Can people eat it? It's intended to be eaten. Um, we say, you know, we're using food to preserve food um, or to protect food. And, you know, here in the U.S., for example, it's um, FDA grass generally recognized as safe and has been approved for use in the EU as well, um, in addition to a lot of other regions throughout the world. So, yep, it's it's intended to be eaten. You know, the product on its own is approved to you just wanted to eat a peel technically, you know, you could and, and it would be fine. It would be like eating no other kind of food. That's perfectly safe. A product that not only replaces single-use plastic and prevents food going to waste, but is natural and edible too, sounds pretty cool, Laura. What else can it do? Well, something really interesting that we covered in the conversation was what kind of impact did the COVID-19 pandemic uh, have on appeal and whether the pandemic made our people actually more aware of our long and vulnerable food supply chains. Let's hear what Jess had to say about that. I think it did accelerate some of our discussions because I think there was some understanding that our food system was relatively fragile, especially when it came to perishable types of food. But COVID highlighted that in a really big way. Even things like border closures in the beginning had you know, just stopped a lot of food from traveling across borders, exports and imports. Um, and there's sometimes just not enough time for the for the food to get there before it goes bad. Um, we've seen that, you know, kind of all across the world. And I think the Appeal product, while obviously focused on food waste under standard conditions, but in some of these disrupted supply chains, it's a little bit of an extra insurance too. And our food system needs to be able to withstand um, all kinds of conditions that are going to be thrown at us with climate and, and you know, whatever issues do pop up. So I think we've seen 
definitely that there's been increased interest in appeal and maybe just more momentum with some of our existing partners and, and relationships um, because it's been more clear than ever how this additional time could be used um, in ways they hadn't even thought of before. So we've heard there about how Appeal has used innovation to eliminate packaging from the supply chain. Appeal began with a grant from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, and today its investors include Oprah Winfrey and Katy Perry. But how can this kind of innovation be scaled to other industries and locations? Laura, can you tell us a little bit more about the role of finance in supporting upstream innovation? Of course, innovations need money. They need money to test them, to test the technology. They need money to get started and they need money to help them grow and scale. Um, the good news is that we are seeing increasing momentum in supporting upstream innovations at global scale. And one of the organizations helping with this is MBU, which helps to build ventures with a positive environmental and social impact, but that also have a viable business model that can scale and create systemic change. That sounds like a great idea. Let's hear from Dee Dee Nellison, head of the Zero Waste Living Lab programme from MVU, to learn more about what they do. MVU actually uh, uh, builds startups from scratch. So we uh, usually start with an analysis of the issues within a certain value chain. And then we identified what are the biggest issues, the biggest challenges, and also what the opportunities are. And typically, we focus on the gaps that we still see in the market uh, to allow for, well, yeah, a, a future um, value chain. So, for instance, circularity, like within plastics, a circular plastics chain. And then we start building uh, solutions. So, one of the strategies we have is ideation. So, then we start building solutions from scratch. Historically, that, that is what we have been doing. But fortunately, nowadays, there are more and more social enterprises around the world that have very promising solutions. So what we do now as well is that we scout existing innovations worldwide, and then we uh, introduce them in new regions and adapt them to the local context. And the third thing that we do is also some local scouting and that we grow businesses together with uh, entrepreneurs. So while NVU focuses on lots of different areas around the globe, Finding solutions to plastic pollution is an important part of what they do. So in 2019, we started investigating the plastics value chain, uh, starting in Indonesia specifically. So we looked into the biggest issue. Well, I think a lot of people maybe even know that uh, it's the country that has the second biggest pl plastic pollution in the world. So it's facing the issue yeah, on a daily basis, you could say. Uh, so we started looking at like, hey, what's actually happening in that value chain? Like, what are the issues that are happening? But also what is already being done? And what we saw there, if you would talk about a future uh, circular uh, value chain, we saw that still interventions were needed at almost all parts of the value chain. So, um, for instance, uh, there's limited prevention, limited collection and sorting of uh, plastic waste but also recycling is still relatively limited. Well, at the same time, we saw that the initiatives that were ongoing were mainly focusing on what we call downstream. So that's on the parts that happen once the pollution has taken place, or you could better say when the waste has become waste, so after the use by the consumer. So initiatives that were running were mainly around collection, sorting, 
but also uh, recycling or ocean cleanups, for instance. Well, what we saw that wasn't really happening was prevention, so tackling it at the source. And that's when we decided that's the part where we want to focus on. So then we talk about reduction and reuse. And mainly our focus has been on uh, reuse and refill models. So Lara, what Didi's talking about here, reducing and reusing plastic waste, is a different kind of upstream innovation from what Appeal is doing. Yes, yeah, sometimes you need the, you, de- you need packaging or you can't eliminate it. So if packaging is essential, what you have to consider is how you might redesign the product, the packaging or the business model to enable reuse. And this is a huge uh, economic opportunity. It's about $10 billion. And that's only the economic opportunity of shifting just 20% of plastic packaging from single use to reuse. And of course, you also need to take into account the context to find the best solutions for the people living there. That's exactly why NVU uses human-centered design to develop solutions. These solutions can't just be a clever idea. People need to actually use them. Let's hear more from Didi about that. And this actually means that you take the people uh, uh, into account as of the start of your design process. They're actually part of your whole process. And the reason behind this is that we believe that to make solutions succeed, it's very important that they match the local context. And indeed, they are desirable as well. Well, if you then look at it and if you see what we want to reach, um, the upside of this is that we do not only look at impactful solutions, but we also make sure we design a solution that gets traction in the market because it's something people want to use. Creating something that works in a local context that people want to use is important. And when single-use sachets seem affordable and convenient to consumers, the alternative needs to be equally appealing. CoinPack is one solution aiming to address those challenges, as Didi explained. CoinPack is a solution which we ideated to actually replace those single-use sachets with a reusable alternative. So CoinPack at the moment provides uh, reusable bottles uh, through uh, local sales points, which are those warrooms, the small stores, but also waste banks and through peer-to-peer sellers. And uh, consumers can buy their products in reusable bottles. They pay a deposit, and when they bring it back uh, empty, they get a reward. It's a smart system, so the, um, the retailer, for instance, the warroom owner, can scan the bottles, so... Uh, They also know where the bottle goes. And when the bottle comes back, they give the reward to the consumer. And CoinPack actually collects the empty bottles, uh, does the cleaning and the refilling, and then they are distributed again. And um, in that way, the bottles are being reused and it's it's a a central refill model. So the service is really being covered by CoinPack, making it relatively easy for both the end consumer, but also the store owners to use the system. What a fantastic example of a return on the go reuse business model. But let's hear more about the benefits that it provides. Yeah, so that's what you see actually, that there's sufficient opportunity in, in yeah, to replace that bottle because you can imagine, of course, you don't need to buy a new packaging all the time. So you can reuse it and you replace that with, of course, the logistics and the cleaning that's being done. Um, and it's indeed, it, it, it works for everyone. So for the consumer, it's interesting because in their next, yeah, often you see that they use that cashback in their next buy 
The Warung owner sells a bit more because the bottles are uh, slightly bigger than the, the sachets. And, uh, and Coinback can still uh, make a business out of it as well, yeah. There are still a lot of challenges when taking an idea like this to scale, but it's something NVU are already working on. Scaling for us is a crucial part, um, impact-wise, but also, of course, to optimise uh, plastic pro- uh, pollution prevention uh, anyways, because at scale, you can imagine, it will have advantages also on the cost that you will make uh, yeah, with the model. Um, and if I look at it, well, the starting point, of course, is that every model, a reuse or refill model, should start with a, a good business model. That's something the innovator can do. But then once you have it, we indeed see some prerequisites, which are very important, which are barriers and at the same time opportunities as well. Uh, so one of those is collaboration with um, with brands, so with fast-moving consumer good companies. Currently, the sachets, yeah, of course, contain uh, their products. So collaboration with them is key. Um, for instance, with, within Coinpack, we also collaborate with multiple um, fast-moving consumer good brands. And that's an important prerequisite to reach kill because uh, the consumer, of course, wants to have multiple brands to choose from. Uh, that, that's part of the convenience. And it will allow for a large scale. So that's one thing. So actually the collaboration with uh, with those big companies is key. And I think it's super positive that uh, they are already looking into it. And well, I would only encourage that they do that even, even more and continue that. And then there are a few others that I would like to uh, to highlight. Uh, so some other barriers that we still see is, is that, of course, those businesses need funding to be able to scale. And um, currently, a lot of funding is still uh, directed to the downstream solutions, like recycling, as it's more known. So that's one of the barriers that are currently in the market. It will be great if there's more funding available for upstream solutions. Another one um, that's important is that we do see there's still still some room for R&D, as... um, for instance, Coinpack has developed a new packaging, et cetera. We see things are happening there, but at the same time, that could be optimized, uh, especially as with doing some more R&D. Uh, we could maybe also standardize more, which will help to scale as currently think of, for instance, this cleaning process. It's um, something specific, uh, specifically uh, for reuse. So it would be great if we can... Um, yeah, further develop that and standardize. And the last point is actually that in the end, rules and regulations could have uh, effect as well if it would be incentivized. So, yes, I think on the one hand, we see in Indonesia that those models are showing their, their potential and that there's definitely proof that there is demand in the market and that the models work. And at the same time, there's still quite some challenges uh, um, and barriers to overcome to be uh, available at large scale. And I think that's, uh, uh, yeah, that's, I think, the, the big opportunity and challenge at the same time for the market to collaborate to make that happen. So, Lara, we've heard from two organisations doing really interesting things in upstream innovation today. Didi talked about how NVU has developed CoinPack, create reusable alternatives to single-use packaging, And earlier we heard from Jessica about how Appeal has managed to eliminate packaging altogether thanks to their natural fruit and vegetable coating. 
But what about when reuse or elimination isn't possible? Exactly. And let me let me recap as well a little bit. So the first thing is that you always have to try to eliminate the packaging. But when the packaging is essential, then you have to consider how you might redesign the product, the packaging or the business model to enable reuse. And then if the packaging, as you said, can't be eliminated or reused, then what you have to think about is how do you ensure that the materials are recycled or composted to make sure that they stay in the economy and they are out of the environment. So it's really a case of exploring which solutions work for your business. Exactly, Pippa. If you're interested in rethinking your packaging, product or business model to incorporate upstream innovation, there's lots of information on the Ellen MacArthur Foundation's website, isn't there, Laura? Exactly. And we will leave you the link in the bio of this podcast where you can find the guide. It is a practical guide packed with tips, decision frameworks and over 100 case studies. So if you're looking for examples from all over the world, check it out. You can also follow us on social media and stay tuned because we're going to be publishing more content on upstream innovation. And it doesn't stop there because along with the guide, we have released assets, including workshop templates exciting videos and this guide is free and accessible and you can find it in different languages. Thanks Laura. The guide really is packed with lots of inspiring examples to whet your appetite. That's all from us today but as Laura says if you want to find out more about upstream innovation we've included all the useful links in the episode description and there's more to see on our social accounts too. Please subscribe to our podcast and like, rate and share to help spread the word. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time on the Circular Economy Show podcast. Thanks for listening to the Ellen MacArthur Foundation Circular Economy podcast. Don't forget to share, rate and subscribe.